Good morning. <clears throat> he was uh, 17 years old and a long, long way from home. He left his home early that morning to run an errand for his dad, but when he got to where he was going, he ran into the wrong crowd. And they kidnapped him, and he found himself imprisoned against his will. He was soon to be transported across international borders, or international border, stripped of all human rights, a victim of human trafficking. He was trapped, no way to go, no way to escape. Soon he found himself in the uh, foreign country, in the dark underworld of human tragedies, a world where people, especially young people, are bought and sold as um, for sweatshops or for farms or in dimly lit warehouses or for prostitution rings. Sometimes rich people even buy these people to be their slaves or domestic workers. The United States uh, State Department in 2004 said each year an estimated 600,000 to 800,000 men, women, and children are trafficked across international borders. Some actually uh, estimate the, high, the number to be much higher than that, and the trade is growing. Little did he realize that the day, uh, earlier in that day, a mob of men saw him coming, and at first they conspired to kill him, and he didn't see it coming at all. After all, he was not from an area where there was urban warfare. He wasn't used to dodging bullets. He was in, at this time, a peaceful rolling countryside away from glaring spotlights, concrete jungles, and blinking neon lights. He was surrounded by sheep and goats on a country hillside. The quiet pastoral scene was about to become a crime scene, and yet hardly the place one would expect to find such a scene of crime, and hardly a place to expect to become the victim of kidnapping and human trafficking. Little did he know that he was walking right into their trap. He had made this trip before and had no problem. His father had sent him on this trip once before at least, and, uh, but this time there was something wrong. There was something terribly, terribly wrong. He came to a group of nine men, and they assaulted him. They stripped him of his clothes, and he stood against, alone, against nine other men, older than him, stronger than him, and they seriously, seriously wanted blood. And he pled with them. I kind of um, think of the, the, the uh, account as, as a man who is like a, a bleating lamb. I don't even heard a lamb that is crying out, but something like that. Crying out to them to stop, and they mocked him. He begged them for mercy, and they would not listen. These thugs were going to kill him. But a cooler head prevailed, and instead they threw him down a nearby well while they plotted what to do next. The book of Proverbs says this, My son, 
If sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like shoal and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. While they were thinking about what to do next, these cold-hearted criminals sat down and ate lunch like nothing had happened. And then they figured it out. I know what we'll do. We'll sell him. And so they sold him to traffickers, human traffickers. And he was stripped of all human rights and everything that he had. They made a few bucks by selling him as a human being. He was quickly smuggled across an international border to be sold to the highest bidder. The government, the U.S. government says human trafficking is the third most profitable criminal activity today, following only drug and arms trafficking. An estimated $9.5 billion is generated in annual revenue from this trafficking. This 17-year-old kid was just an average Joe. And coincidentally, that was his name. Joe was no stranger to difficulties. In fact, psychologists today would say that he was born into a dysfunctional family. He had never himself been in any trouble, but he had certainly seen plenty of it. Trouble started early when he was just a baby. His own father was having family problems with his in-laws. They were in the same family business together. And um, the in-laws started accusing him of taking advantage of them. Things got pretty heated, and so the father decided to pack up the family and head for the hills. In reality, he fled for his life. Had it not been for what surely was divine intervention, he and his family almost certainly would have been killed. short while later, that was when he was a baby, short while later, his dad ran into his long-lost brother, a brother whom he had not seen in decades, but a brother who promised to kill him if he ever saw him again. Sidestepping yet another potential brush with death, his dad packed the family once again and moved to a foreign country in what appears to be a way of avoiding real issues in his life. And he settles down, he builds a family house for them all to settle in, and just as they're getting settled, he decides to pack up his family and move again. They moved to a little kingdom this time. They bought some land, and they settled down in this kingdom for maybe eight to ten years. So Joe is now 12 or 13 years of age at this point. One day the king's son sees Joe's older sister and takes her and rapes her. And in retaliation, his brothers stir up an international incident and kill not just the prince, but all the men of the country and steal everything they own from their animals to their wealth to their homes. If this wasn't enough for a boy to experience growing up, the next, events would, the next event would certainly strike at his heart. 
His mom was pregnant. She was pregnant with her second child, and she went into labor. She was just a country girl. And they lived out in the country. There was no Eden Medical Center to help her if there was need. So she had a midwife instead. And she was having hard labor. And although she delivered the baby, she died in the process. Daniel. David. Where's David? David here? Okay, well, Daniel, you're close enough. How would you feel? You don't have to answer the question. How would you feel at your age if mom suddenly died? Well, for, for any reason. You don't have to answer the question. I'm just, I'm just trying to show the age of, of the boy. You're about his age, roughly, give or take, between you and David. How would you feel if your mother died when you were 12 or 13 years of age, taken from your life? By now you must know that I'm speaking about Joe, that is, Joseph, Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel. And we pick up the story about a year after Rachel's death in Genesis 37. So let's turn there this morning. In verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 1, it says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So we see so far that Joseph was a shepherd. And... Um, he was not, as some like to think, when they think of Joseph, a kid who just sat around the home enjoying grapes dropped into his mouth with nothing to do. He was a hard worker. He knew how to work with the animals. And you must remember this, that the family fortune was tied up in their livestock. They had sheep, they had goats, and that was their wealth. It was what supported them uh, in, their, in their life. And so as their livelihood was tied up in that it was important for the sons who took care of the sheep and the and the goats to make sure that they were doing a good job of them of, of taking care of them because their their profit their loss their livelihood depended on it it would have a serious impact on the family if they didn't and so we see joseph and he's a hard-working man he's diligent and apparently the brothers he was working with were not and uh, Joseph was working with four of his half-brothers. There were 12, well, 11 boys at this time in all. Well, actually, there were 12 now that um, uh, Rachel had, the, um, had Benjamin. But he was so young, he wasn't working with them. So there were 11 of them that worked the sheep. And so at this point, he's working with four of them. And he's working with four of his half-brothers. These two, I'm sorry, these four brothers were the sons of Leah, and Rachel's handmaids. And by name, they're Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 
It's hard to determine from the scripture exactly how old these brothers are, but I'm going to estimate that they're at least 10 years older than Joseph is. Some people estimate that they could be as much as 20 or 30 years older. Um, in either case, let's take the, let's take the uh, lowest number and say that they're just 10 years older than he is. So they're probably somewhere between 25 and 30 years of age. Those are the guys he's working with. Joseph is 17. When Joseph returned to his father, he filed a bad report about how the boys were handling things. Some people read this and say, what a tattletale. What a big mouth. Why didn't he just keep his mouth quiet? And if he treats his brothers this way, he deserves anything that they dish out to him. That's the mentality of many of the people who read this. Now, I know that none of you think that way, but I want to give you good reason not to. And so let's skip down to verse 14 for just a minute. It says, Then he, that is Israel, or Jacob, said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. It is likely that in the context of this passage that this is the second trip he's made out to see his brothers. And so uh, Jacob is asking Joseph to run an errand. Go and find out how they're doing. Go and find out how the flocks are. It's important to him. It's the family business. It's important to make sure that they have their livelihood. And so it seems that Jacob trusted Joseph, that he was trustworthy. But I'm not sure he felt the same way about his other sons. After all the other sons had done in their lives, it's really no wonder if he didn't trust them. These are the the boys that had done a lot of uh, evil up to this point, and, and I would not blame Jacob for not trusting the other boys. So he sent Joseph, and when he came back, he gave a bad report. They weren't doing well, or the sheep weren't doing well, or the goats weren't doing well because they weren't doing well. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. All right, so Joseph is 17. His brothers are 25 to 35, let's say. He's dad's favorite, and it doesn't sit well with the rest of the kids. And then Jacob gave him a coat of many colors. It's really a a coat of prominence, a coat of, um, well, it was special to him only. And uh, that didn't sit well with them either. This favoritism enraged his brothers. In fact, it says they hated him and would not speak civilly to him. Joseph was the son of Rachel. If you remember the story, Rachel was the woman that Joseph lo- uh, Jacob loved and was willing to work seven years for her. And then he was tricked into marrying Leah. And then he asked his uncle Laban, why did you trick me? He said, well, this is the way things are done here. We always give away the older one first. If you want the younger one, you can have her, but seven more years of work. And it said it seemed like a day to him. It was like nothing. And he worked seven more years for Rachel. He loved her. This was her first son. He loved him. It was in relation to to Rachel, I'm sure, as well. As well as what the scripture says here, it was a son of his old age. 
but it was Rachel's son. The Bible says about, as we look at the brothers and their relationship to, um, to Joseph, we see anger, we see resentment, we see envy, and we see bitterness that is rising up. The Bible says, or Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Be careful when it comes to the matter of your heart, matters of your heart, anger is murder in seed form. That's what Jesus is saying. Be careful of what goes on in your heart. Be careful of what goes on in your mind. Do you speak evil of one another? Do you resent one another? Be careful of the issues of your heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And James says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Be careful of the matters of the heart. Now, we want to go back and look at Joseph for just a minute again. God is about to call Joseph into service. And he does so in the most, one of the most unusual ways we see in Scripture. Let me ask you a question before we get there, though. How does God speak to you today? Some of you are going to say, well, of course, he speaks to us right here in the Word. We have the complete, completed canon. He speaks to us through the written Word of God. And you would be absolutely right. Now, it is true that God also speaks to us through the conscience, and he speaks to us through his creation, but his primary way of speaking to us today is through this book, through his word. But suppose you didn't have the New Testament. Would you know how to be saved? Would you know how to live for the Lord today? What if you didn't have the New Testament? You say, well, we'd have the Old Testament. But what if you didn't have the Old Testament? How would God speak to you then? You know, Joseph is in a situation here where he's part of the Old Testament. He couldn't turn a few pages after chapter 37 to see how the story ended. He's, in fact, the Old Testament wasn't written until long after his death. And the stories were then told and written by Moses. Joseph's story is in the first book of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that God did speak to men in days gone by, sometimes directly, sometimes through dreams or visions. That's not how he speaks to us today, but that is how he spoke to them. And so God wanted to communicate something about the future to Joseph, and he did so through two dreams. Let's take a look at them in chapter 37, verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, 
Thank you for who brought the, the uh, flowers today. Didn't know it was going to be used as an illustration, did you? There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose, and it also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. What does that tell you? Brothers? <laughs> and his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and, his, and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream, and it told it to his brothers, and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down on earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. When his brothers heard the first dream about the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf, they immediately understood the significance of the dream. It wasn't hard to interpret the dream. And essentially, they vowed that they would never bow down to him. That'll never happen. Never. Say never. Words come back to haunt them later. It sounds kind of like the religious rulers of Jesus' day, doesn't it? We will not have this man reign over us, talking of Jesus. And yet my Bible tells me that every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is going to happen. The dream infuriated Joseph's brothers and their hatred for Joseph multiplied. Let me ask you, was Joseph right or was Joseph wrong in telling this dream to his brothers? Some think he was proud or arrogant, but hold your judgment for just a minute. The second dream had 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down before Joseph. And it says in the, that his brothers envied him, his father rebuked him. They again indicated they would never bow down to him. But it says his father kept the matter in mind. You know, I like to think that Jacob thought about what Joseph had told them. And he began to be troubled in his own heart. And he was reminded that God had also spoken to him the same way, through a dream. And as he began to think back at his life and how he had gone astray and wandered and wandered for a long time, he had to remember that, hey, Jacob, remember, God spoke to you that way too. And he took it to heart. And so I'm sure that he was meditating on this and thinking, I wonder what this means. I saw the ladder descending from heaven and the angels of God. Joseph dreams a dream about the stars and the sun and the moon obviously representing our family bowing down to him. What does it mean? And as he meditates on it, I'm sure he's thinking, what does it mean, Lord? What does it mean? He doesn't know. Joseph doesn't know the future. He just knows this is a dream God gave him. 
It's a plan that God has for Joseph's life. How it's all going to come about, Joseph had no way of putting it all together. But he believed God. I have no doubt about that. But soon, any thoughts of Joseph's future were rudely snatched from Jacob. Did Joseph really deserve this kind of treatment from his family? God spoke to him and revealed the future to him. And Joseph simply believed God. Joseph was a man of faith, even at 17 years old. In, this, in his enthusiasm about what God's future plans and purposes for him uh, were going to be, he shared the news with his brothers. He told them, look, God gave me a dream. And in this dream, this is what happened. They didn't respond too well. Was that wrong? Well, let me ask you. What has God revealed to you about your future? If you're a Christian this morning, what has He revealed about your future? If you're a believer, He's told you that in His Word that your sins are forgiven and that you're a child of God. He has told us that Jesus is coming again and that He has told us that, that He has gone to prepare a place for us. Where? In heaven. That where He is, there you may be also. He has told us that you are kings and priests to our God. He has told us that He is coming back again to reign and that we will reign with Him. Have you told anybody? Have you told anybody? What's their reaction? So you think you're better than me, do you? You tell people that you know full well where you're going to go if you die. I'm going to go to heaven. How can you be so sure? You think you're that good, do you? Is it pride when you tell people that you're as sure of heaven as if you were already there? No, it's a fact based on the Word of God. It's faith. It's faith. God's promise is to you. And so if you share that with unsaved people or share that with, with believers who aren't walking with the Lord, they may take it the wrong way. They may get offended. They may hate you. But is it wrong to share it? I don't think so. Welcome to the Prophets Club. Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what should happen. It's not always what does happen. If you let your light shine, it shouldn't surprise you if you're reviled and you're persecuted. It's not pride to share the Word of God. It's, if, you're, uh, if you're sharing about the fact that you are a sinner saved by grace, but that's the truth that appalls many people. Soon the matter of the flocks are on Jacob's mind again, and so he sends Jacob out to do an errand to find out how the boys are doing, how the flocks are faring. And that would be the last time that Jacob would see his son for over 20 years. 
Now, we've already covered what his brothers did to him. They conspired to kill him. They stripped him of his clothing. They threw him in a pit, and they sold him to human traffickers. Then they dipped his special robe in the blood of a goat to deceive their father, to make him think that he had been attacked by some wild animal. And then they took it back to the father, Jacob. And this is what they said to him. We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Just as Jacob had deceived his own father with the skin of a goat, so he was being deceived by his sons with the blood of a goat. And their shameful scheme worked. Jacob assumed that Joseph had been torn apart by beasts. Now we get one more glimpse into the callousness and the brutality of Joseph's brothers in this passage. They watched their father, when they gave him the, the uh, coat of many colors, they watched their father fall apart emotionally before them in grief. And he tore his own clothes and he sat down and he wept. And, they, and he mourned, it says, he, he, he wore sackcloth and he mourned for his son for days. Now listen to this part here, it says, and they arose to comfort him. How can they comfort him? They are the ones who created this problem and sold them, sold Joseph to um, the slave trade. How could they comfort their father when they refused to tell him the truth about what they had done, what lies, what hypocrisy, what coldness of heart? And for over 20 years, they held on to this secret sin. They all knew it. They all knew what they had done, and they kept it secret. But their deceit was finally revealed, but not until there was full and complete repentance. The Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. God is not mocked. We may think that we get away with sin. God sees it all. The all-seeing eye of God knows everything, not only what we do, but our thoughts and the very intentions of our heart. Be sure your sin will find you out. Deep inside their conscience, they knew they had sinned. And they thought they would suppress their guilt. And for two decades, they carried the guilt of what they had done. And yet ultimately, God would bring it to the forefront and they would have to deal with it once and for all. And you know, God is in the business of dealing with people and bringing them to repentance. That's what He wants. He wants us to come to Him and repent of our sins. That's an acknowledgement that we have sinned. First of all, if it, it, uh, for salvation. We are sinners before God and we rightly deserve to be uh, sent to the lake of fire for eternity. That's what we deserve. And we come to the Lord and we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, you are righteous. I am wrong. I am a sinner and I deserve anything that you throw my way. I deserve to go to hell. No question about it. He then tells us the wonderful story of the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and bled and died in our place that we might be forgiven of all of our sins and be made right with God. God is in the business of bringing people to repentance, salvation. But he's also in the business of bringing believers to repentance, 
believers who have strayed, believers who are living in sin or have gone astray into sin. He's in the business of bringing them to repentance where they acknowledge their sins. And I want, to th- I want to just ask you, think about it in your own life. There have probably been times that you can point to where the Lord has, as Bill McDonald used to say, He has barbecued me, barbecued me about my sin. Maybe He's doing that now in your life. There's something that you're holding back from God. There's some sin that you're involved in. And God is beginning to point His finger at it. And He wants you to repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Him. Today, do not harden your heart, but come to Him in repentance. The Bible says, Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and He will have mercy on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. You know, people try to avoid their sin and the consequences of their sin. They say, Well, I'm just going to move to a new location. That'll take care of it. Try to change their location, or we can try to pretend everything is okay. You can try to blame other people. You can try to go on with life as if nothing is wrong. But the Lord is faithful, and He is going to keep hounding you until you come to the point of repentance. And praise God, He does that. In those quiet moments alone, He's going to tap you on the shoulder, and He's going to remind you something's not right. Something's not right in your fellowship with me. Something's not right in your fellowship with another brother or another sister. He's going to tap you on the shoulder to remind you. And you may waste days, you may waste weeks, or even as these brothers did, decades. Filling your life with empty activities, but that sin is still going to have to be addressed. God is still going to deal with that sin. Joseph's brothers could not forget what they had done as long as Joseph was missing from the family table and as long as they saw their father mourning for their lost brother. What is it that is keeping you from a vibrant and um, uh, relationship and fellowship with the Lord? There is a way back to God. And it starts at the foot of the cross. In repentance. Is it a grievance against another brother? Is it a hatred for another person? Is it envy? Is it pride? Is it backbiting? Is it blaming others for your troubles? What is the sin that the Lord is trying to point out in your life? Now, we know this because we can read the end of the story. If we turn over, we're not going to do it right now, but if we turn over to later chapters in the book of Genesis, we read that ultimately Joseph's brothers were confronted with their sin. And it is in such a detailed way that he goes about doing it. uh, It's really a classic in repentance. But they wasted 20 years of their lives before getting to that point. How many years have gone by in your life? You know what it is. How many years have gone by? You know, if you really want to see fruit in your life, if you really want to be used by the Lord, 
that sin has to be dealt with. Now, for the remaining time, I want to learn some lessons from Joseph's life. Many have pointed out from this passage uh, about Joseph that, um, not just this passage, but the rest of the uh, book of Genesis, um, the striking similarities between Joseph and Jesus. In fact, many uh, have brought out over a hundred types or illustrations, um, parallels in Joseph that point to the Savior. That's not the purpose of our study. So if you want a good book on it, I can recommend some afterward, but that's not what we're doing in our studies. These are character studies. And the whole idea of character studies, as we've said before, is that these stories were given for our instruction, that we might learn from the lives of these men and women how we should live. And so as wonderful as the types are, I'm going to ignore them altogether. And we're going to move on to how, how to live based on some things we see in Joseph's life. Well, first of all, Joseph, as I said earlier, is a man of faith. 17 years old. Is there anybody who's 17 years old here? Oh, yeah, Alice. Yeah, okay. All right. Now I know what the sins are. <laughs> okay. Okay, so nobody 17? Hannah. Marion. Okay, that's the age we're talking about. Yeah, oh, thank you. So 17 years old. If you look carefully at the story, I don't see where Joseph did anything wrong to his brothers in sharing what he shared. He shared God's word with his family and his brothers. But because of envy or jealousy, his brothers attack him and sell him into slavery. Now, it's important to note, again, that we know the rest of the story. Joseph didn't. And so Joseph is being attacked, he's being maligned, and he's he's being beaten and he's being stripped of his clothes and he's being thrown into a pit and he has no idea what's going to happen next. That's what he sees. We know the end of the story. We have the distinct privilege of knowing that God had an amazing purpose in the life um, of Joseph through this horrible ordeal. Joseph later could see the fingerprints of God in the whole affair and even he, t- he even told his brothers You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And this should give us an enormous clue as to God's way with us as believers. We have example after example of, as Paul Harvey likes to say, the rest of the story. Joseph's sufferings were absolutely necessary for reigning. This was the purpose of God. James tells us, You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And so those two stories, just if you had no other stories, just those two alone, are excellent examples of what God does in the midst of trials. He takes people through trials and difficulties where they cannot see the end. But they know God, and that's all they need to know. If they know who God is, and they know the character of God, that's all they need, because God is faithful. He is just. He is righteous. He is loving. He is kind. He is good. If they only knew that God is good, that alone 
That's all they need. God is good. So even though it seems like the whole world is falling apart around me, my own little world, it doesn't matter because God is good. But believers, as New Testament saints, we have so much more than these Old Testament saints have. We know the scripture that says he works all things together for good to them who love him and are the called according to his purposes. We have so many promises of God and we have so many illustrations from Old Testament saints of how God worked his purposes out in their lives and through them. All they needed to do was trust God. And we see when men and women in the Old Testament and the New decide to take things in, matters into their own hands and do things their way, it fails. But they trust God. God is faithful. He is good. As James says, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You look at what Job went through, and you look at what Joseph went through. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, we all face trials. We all do. But how we endure trials speaks about our character and what God is doing in our lives. Show me a man under trial, and I will tell you what the man is really like. That's what he's really like. Not what he says about himself, but how he comes through the trial. Does he really trust the Lord? Joseph had a trial of jealous brothers, and they made his life miserable. I, I don't think I've shared this with you, but for over 20 years, I have had a similar trial to this. Um, the hatred is real. The animosity is palpable. The lies and the deceit never seem to end. Where once I thought I had love, I endure the scorns and the, and the sneers and the threats of hatred. These are people who cannot speak civilly to me. And... Uh, it, it turns out, and I said, uh, the reason that Joseph had this trial was because the brothers were jealous. He said, well, what would make you think they were jealous of you? <laughs> What's to be jealous of? After 20 years of this, the one who turned an entire family against me called me out of the blue one day. He said, Don, this is so-and-so. Didn't tell his name. I just want to tell you, I'm sorry for what I've done. I said, what have you done? <laughs> he said, well, I just wanted to tell you that years ago, 20 years ago, he said, uh, I became jealous of you, and I was envious of the position that you were in, that God had placed you in. And he says, I have done everything that I could to spread lies about you and the family and to... Um, turn their hearts against you and for 20 years he had been living with the guilt of this somewhat under the surface until the lord finally barbecued him enough to cause him to come and repent of his sins and i freely forgave him he meant it for evil god meant it for good do i know precisely what good god wanted to bring out of that not really, but I know God, and that's all that matters. 
And God causes all things to work together for good to those who are the, uh, called according to his purposes. Really, jealousy and envy have no place in Christian service. The Corinthian church apparently was plagued with this problem, and Paul addressed it with them in 1 Corinthians 12. And he talks about, and he illustrates it this way. He says, look, the whole body, the church is like a body. We are members one of another. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? And now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather these members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty but our presentable parts have no need but god listen to this god composed the body having given greater honor to the part which lacks it that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another and if one member suffers all the members suffer with it or if one member is honored then all members rejoice with it now you are the body of christ and members individually i feel it's going to sound boastful, I know, but I feel very confident what my gift is in the church. I have no problem with knowing what my gift is in the church. You should have the same assurance if you're a believer. You should know what your gift is, and you should be exercising it. My confidence in knowing is not arrogance and is not pride. It is a fact just as Paul presented the fact this way, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. I am not placed in the body, in the position that I'm placed in, by man. God has chosen what part I play in the body, just like he has chosen what part you play in the body. This last week I had a brother call me and tell me of how the Lord had used him to see someone come to, to uh, saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wasn't jealous of him. I wasn't envious. As a matter of fact, I said to him, I rejoice. It's a great thing that God has used you this way. And so I rejoice when he rejoices. And when the body suffers, we suffer along with it. Um, I rejoice with him. Why? Because God is using his gift to build up the body. I rejoice for it calls for celebration. In Joseph's case, he had a clear word from the Lord, and it resulted in a trial. But Joseph endured not just the trial of, his, uh, of being cast out from his family for 20-some-odd years. He was separated for um, two decades, but at the same time, he went through other trials too. And so as one trial is continuing for over 20 years, he's also faced with additional trials. And as we read the scripture, we realize that he was uh, sorely tempted. He was imprisoned. He was forgotten in prison and so on. But the first decade or so of his life in Egypt was training time 
for reigning time. And brothers and sisters, God has promised us that we will reign with Him. And what we go through on earth as we wait for that time is training time for reigning time. And He wants to conform us to become like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, as someone has said, wants to populate heaven with people just like His Son. Many of you are going through difficult times and difficult trials. I want to tell you that God has not forgotten you. He did not forget Joseph in prison or in Egypt. And He has not forgotten you. We have Job's case as an example as well. And we have this case of Joseph as an illustration of what God is doing behind the scenes in your life. You've heard the illustration before, I'm sure, but I'll tell it again. My wife from time to time has worked on um, needlepoint or other types of um, handwork like that. And as I've looked at the needlepoint work upside down, it looks like a mess. And you have all these threads going different ways and colors all intermingled and it doesn't look very good at all. Silly boy, turn it over. And you see it from the standpoint of the finished product. And it's beautiful. It's a piece of art. And when we are in a trial, we sometimes talk about being under a trial. And we are looking at it from the vantage point of looking at the backside of a needlepoint. And we're looking up and we're, we're so focused on the trial that we don't see what God is doing from His vantage point in our lives. It's a work of art. It just looks a mess from our perspective. Can you trust Him? A master designer who created the heavens and the earth, you think He can deal with your life? I think so. Conforming us to the image of His Son. And each color and thread that runs through our lives has the ultimate purpose of making us just like Jesus in character. It's important not to concentrate on the back side, on the trial itself. The trials themselves are, if you do, if you do that, uh, you'll become hopelessly discouraged. I've seen many of you go through trials in your lives. And those that... Uh, have gone through rejoicing absolutely amaze me. I'll tell you, I have, I have watched some who praise the Lord with each new blow, and it just absolutely amazes me that that's the way we should do it, trusting in God. Besides the trial I have already shared with you, I could tell you of physical trials that I've gone through, spiritual trials, practical trials, emotional trials, familial trials, some of them are still ongoing. Some of them are going on together at the same time. Some for weeks, some for years, some for decades. But if I concentrate on the trials, <laughs> they'd overwhelm me. They'd absolutely overwhelm me. Can you imagine the Lord coming to you at the beginning of a trial and saying to you, look, I see an area in your life that I want to fix. I want to make you more like the Lord Jesus in this particular area of your life. Lord, how long is it going to take? Well, it's patience. Can I have patience in a hurry? Like maybe by this afternoon? doesn't work that way. Well, Lord, how long is it going to be? And you know, in His mercy, He doesn't tell us. <laughs> how 
I'll tell you, if he had told me at the beginning of some trials, look, this is going to last for years, I think I would have quit, been bankrupt. But he doesn't tell us. And he gives grace sufficient for every day. You know, it's interesting. As a result of trials, I have found an interesting thing that takes place in the Word of God. As a young man, as a young believer, I've read passages of Scripture. I've read through the Bible several times. And I've come to, early on in my Christian life, I came to some of the Psalms, and I would read the Psalms, and I'd say, I don't get it. You know, just words on a page. <laughs> you blister through it to the next chapter, to the next Psalm. Whatever, and move on to the next Psalm, you know. And then you go through a trial, and all of a sudden, that Psalm that wasn't there before just pops off the page at you. And you say, Lord... This was written for me in my circumstances, here and now. It's amazing. And there's the comfort. And there's the help that you need to endure the trial that he's given you. The word of God comes alive at time and time again as you uh, go through trials. And um, I think of the rich treasures we have in the word of God for those who want to be schooled by them. I think of Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your hearts. The psalmist says, commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. David said, I have been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Why? Because the Lord loves justice, and he does not forsake his saints. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. From our point of view, the trial may seem very confusing and very difficult, but from God's point of view, He has everything under control. We need to trust Him. If you learn nothing else from the life of Joseph, Learn this simple lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. God can be trusted no matter what the circumstances. Our time is up.
and we'll forego the closing hymn, but you might want to read it, 508, God moves in a mysterious way, tells the story again in in song, but we're going to pass on it this this afternoon, we're just going to end in prayer at this time. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for the illustration of a man like Joseph, a man who trusted in you as a young a young boy really and uh, never looked back lord we thank you so much for the fact that even in spite of his brothers rising up against him yet he looked to the lord and we thank you so much lord that you fulfilled your word to him you gave him your word and the revelation of what was going to take place in the future and lord you fulfilled your word to him Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, too. And we know that your word is yea and amen. It cannot fail. Lord, we pray that in the midst of trials that we would count it all joy. But, Lord, we would also trust you no matter what the cost and no matter what the circumstances, that we would have faith in you through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.